Thank you so much to Josie for that uh, lovely, lovely reminder of that verse from John. And um, first of all, my name's Liz and I'm the rector here at Incarnation. I'm so glad that you're worshipping with us today and it's good to be with you. Let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us, that you see us and that you are working with all of us um, on the things that we need to allow to die or ask you to help die within us and we want to be people who bring forth fruit amen so kids i don't know if um, if you've planted seeds before can i just make one suggestion that um miss josie there was showing us what happens to the seeds it's it's often not a good idea to keep digging them up to see how they're growing so so use that as an example of um uh seeing seeing the process but uh I wonder what, when you look, listen to that and you think about it, I wonder what it makes you think of. And if you're applying that to yourself, what do you think it means to have a seed have to die? And what, on the other hand, would you like to, if you were going to be the plant, what might you look like? And what kind of fruit do you think you would produce? Maybe while I'm talking, you might want to draw that or imagine it or build it out of Legos or something like that. So feel free to show us at the end of the service when we chat anything that you've produced. It's an interesting idea. And one of the things about producing fruit is quite often that's the way that we want our neighbors and our friends to come to see Jesus. And so maybe as you think about fruit, you can think about what are the things inside you that would be helpful for other people to show them a little bit more about who Jesus is. These passages we've been studying in 1 Corinthians contain a lot of hard information or talk or ideas about how we can not be offensive to other people and how we can help others to avoid stumbling, which is what we were talking about last week. And today, when we come to chapter 11, yes, Megan, thank you for reading it. It is a very complicated passage. And it's a passage which has caused so much confusion in the church and in society over the centuries. And it's confusing for a number of reasons. But I wonder if now, if you've got a Bible to hand, you might want to have one open at um, any translation will do. And you might want to have a pen and paper so that you can write down any questions that occur to you as... Uh, I'm talking. One little just aside to note, where it talks about wife and husband, you can actually, depending on the way you translate the Greek, one of the things is that it's very easy to put in man and woman there instead. So don't get hung up in the whole wife-husband thing. Now, there are at least three reasons why this passage is very confusing. First of all, it contains a ton of cultural stuff. And so disentangling what's cultural and what's theological is one of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. Secondly, Paul's argument is really pretty disjointed. And it's not a clear like point one, point two, point three conclusion. It's, it's muddly. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And point three, I would say that Paul in this section is actually also beginning to think through some theological ideas for himself. And it's almost like he hasn't quite got to the point where he wants to get to yet. And I'll explain more about that as well. Sometimes when I come to a passage like this, which is a bit confusing, I like to actually imagine myself somewhere else in the world. 
what would I, how would I read this passage if I was a subsistence farmer in Botswana or a fisherman in Indonesia or a lawyer in South Korea? You know, put yourself somewhere else and begin to think about what would it look like to read this passage from a different cultural position to the one where we're sitting in now? Because the thing we know about scripture is that it, it needs to relate to the whole world. The whole of the world needs to understand and be able to relate into the messages and the ideas that are being put forward. So sometimes perhaps you might want to check your reading of any passage with somebody else. So in the whole of chapter 11, and I'm only really going to talk about the first half today, Paul is addressing two more problems which the Corinthians seem to have sent, written to him about. And the first one is this idea about men and women in the church and head coverings and authority and the way that people interrelate and the way that they behave once they're in church. And then the second half, which Megan didn't read, was, is the bit about how we approach the Lord's table. And I'll just re refer to that briefly. Now, one thing is absolutely certain these verses at the beginning here, 2 to 16, have caused a lot of head scratching over the centuries. And I've had great fun diving into commentators and commentaries all the way from the early church to today to see what different people have said through the years. And opinions have ebbed and flowed and changed during life and times and cultures. I particularly like this comment by uh, a recent author called Richard Hayes, who actually is the brother of Mary Hayes, who preached here recently. And he said, in view of the uncertainty surrounding these matters, it is impossible to give a fully confident interpretation of the passage. Well, thank you very much, Richard. Um, that wasn't that helpful. Well, maybe it was. And he, amongst others, have referred to, let me just, the little phrase about the angels. I think the, the best way I have come to understand that bit is the idea that we're all worshipping. And when we worship, the angels worship with us. And so, therefore, they, that also adds to the weightiness of the moment when we come into God's presence. Is we're not alone. The angels are with us watching all that we do. So let's not get bogged down too much in all the details. Let's think about what we do know. First of all, when we approach scripture, we need to do so recognizing that the whole of the Bible is coherent. And so we read every passage in the light of other passages. And then you have to do it, take a careful hand to try and discern what is theological and timeless, what is an absolute truth about God, or what is a culturally appropriate moment. So if you're going to read some of the purity laws and numbers, you know, we don't have to burn down our houses every time we see a bit of mold, fortunately. So there are lots of things which are different. There's the theological and there's the cultural. And so it's a particularly useful sometimes to look also at the social setting in which, into which a passage is written. And this was a time when the early church was really beginning to form in Corinth. It was a new thing. And so it was very important for the Corinthians to work out how they were adjusting to their neighbors, how not to cause a scandal. So just one couple of points about what was going on with men and women at the time in Corinth. Well, interestingly, women at that time were beginning to find a difference in the way that they related into society. There were more women who were rising to prominence as businesswomen 
or in the whole patron client setup of the day, there were more women who could be referred to as patrons. And in fact, Paul refers to Phoebe as a patron. Women could be slave owners, and they always ran their own households, and many would have employed men and been bosses in their own businesses, CEOs, as well as in their own homes. And so women were trying to find out how they could relate in the public square as well, in a way that was new to them as a culture. And so the early church was born at a time when many women were redefining their roles in society. But even so, Jesus and Paul both speak into this dramatic culture shift that was happening at the time. So when we read Paul, we remember that things were happening in society around him at that time, but we also look at scripture as a whole. And so, for example, if you start in Genesis, in verse 126, Paul said, let us make humankind in our own image, according to our likeness, men and women, both made in the likeness of Christ, in likeness of God. And Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. We look too at the Gospels and the way that Jesus treated women, the way that he engaged with the woman at the well, or the woman caught in adultery, or the woman who reached out and touched him in the crowd. So many occasions when Jesus spoke to women with compassion and kindness. Interesting to note how Jesus often referred to women as daughters, daughters of Abraham, giving them a spiritual equality to that of men. But Jesus didn't just give women an easy ride. He also challenged them on their sin. He confronted their unfaithfulness. He required them to repent, to come and ask to be forgiven. But there was no distinction in Christ's teaching between men and women. And even within Paul, Paul writes to the Galatians, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. One thing which comes up repeatedly through this letter to Corinthians is the way that Paul was endeavoring to break down barriers between people, to break down divisions between groups. Paul also often refers to women in leadership. There's the delightful occasion when he refers to Junior in Romans chapter 16 as the foremost of the apostles and the quaint way that uh, somehow Junior got translated in the 20th century to Junio as a man for a while. But all the traditional translations refer to Junior as a woman. He speaks of other women in leadership in the church, Phoebe as a deacon, Priscilla as a church planter, Mary, Hermas, and so many more. In other places, Paul talks about when women prophesy in church and when women speak. And so as we look at scripture as a whole, we see that men and women are both given roles and responsibilities within the family of God, within the church, within the community of people who faithfully follow Christ. So what is Paul talking about in verses 2 to 16? We can't dismiss the words he uses, but can we understand them? Well, first of all, I think that one of the things Paul is trying to do is to make sure that there was no shame being brought on the church in Corinth. So how might the early church have caused a scandal locally? Well, I think that one aspect of this, which it refers to, is this question about head covering. Women in the public sphere who had their heads uncovered in Corinth 
If they were downtown and were walking around without something over their head, they were likely to be women who were, to put it bluntly, for hire. Prostitutes were not allowed to cover their heads. Being uncovered was a sign of being an unrespectable woman. And so allowing ex-prostitutes within the church to cover their head was actually quite an extraordinary gift that Paul was offering to women. He was giving them an opportunity to become, if you like, respectable within society. He was giving them a chance to be redefined. Paul is encouraging the whole community to treat women with respect and to encourage them all to step into their identity as Christ followers with confidence. In the same way, cutting women cutting their hair or men not cutting their hair was in the context of Corinth regarded as shameful. And I think, I feel confident in putting these down as cultural statements that Paul was making. They didn't want the church to be a scandal. They didn't want women to take this newfound liberty too far. They wanted to actually just create this atmosphere where people would be curious and not condemning as they looked at the church. One of the things, just a little side note, which is quite interesting, is that actually this head covering thing was a reversal of the tradition that the Jewish people had had where men would have worn a head covering and women often would not. So Paul is reminding everyone that when they come to church, they need to dress respectfully. Perhaps a modern equivalence would be, you know, don't wear your swimsuit or guys wear a shirt to church and not a tank top quietly. But there you go. But what about this idea of a head of headship? And this is where Paul, I think, becomes a little confusing. As as if you read down through the chapter, you can almost find two contradictory arguments being worked as you go through from verse 3 through to verse 16. Because in verse 3, he begins, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That sounds pretty hierarchical. Paul, are you being hierarchical here? And yet when you get to verse 11, he says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman, who just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, but all things come from God. Paul, what do you say? You've got hierarchy here and equality here, mutuality. Well, first of all, N.T. Wright suggests that in verse three, what Paul is suggesting is that there's a whole interconnectedness, that we're all just connected in the universe, that everybody has an interlocking, almost, I, I picture it like a big globe with being made together with those toys, which kind of come together with little sticks. Perhaps that's one way of looking at it. And in addition, when you go to verse seven, it would seem to me that, to suggest that women are one removed from being image bearers of God which is a direct contradiction of Genesis chapter one, where we told that men and women are made in the image of God. In verse three, is Paul arguing for a Trinitarian hierarchy when he says the head of Christ is God? Now it's true, I think I mentioned earlier, that is it possible that Paul is somewhat working out what he believes as he works through this chapter? And this would be one instance where I think that seems to be the case. Our idea of the Trinity has developed through the early church through to now, our idea of the whole 
three persons in the Trinity being internet connected and being interwoven and equal is something which all of us would accept as being orthodox teaching. So is this an early view of the Trinity? Is the son subservient to the father? I don't think so. When I, one of my favorite words when referring to the Trinity is perichoresis. It's a lovely word. And I always imagine it. It's kind of sometimes described as the dance between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This idea of the three persons of the Trinity being dynamic and interactive and loving and serving, always giving precedence to each other. There is no hierarchy within the Trinity. The Catechism states, God is one divine being externally existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Trinity. So what do we do with verses 7 to 10? We can't just get out our sharpie and cross them out. Um, tempting though that might be for some of us to do that. Well, actually, again, I think it's difficult. But one suggestion which actually does make a lot of sense to me is because they don't particularly fit with the flow of the argument and because you land up with these two parallel and contradictory things, could it be perhaps that verses 7 and 10 are actually Paul quoting for the, from the original letter from the Corinthians, stating their position, which he then provides the argument to or the con contrast to? That makes it read much more logically and coherently. But I think without a doubt, the point where Paul rests is in verses 11 to 12. So let me repeat those again. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For just as woman comes from man, so man comes through woman. But all things come from God. This is a position which Paul has reiterated elsewhere, where he talked about no Jew, nor Greek, no male, nor female. It fits with the reading in Genesis. Paul is circling the argument back to all of our mutuality and equality before the Father. We are all made by the Creator and we're all in relationship with one another in our own dance of love within our community of faith. Men and women all invited to pray and prophesy, all invited to lead and serve and all to be done under the instruction of mutual love and service respectful care and kindness to one another. Think back to chapter 10 last week when Paul was so passionately arguing that we are here for each other, that we are here to help each other to grow in faith and relationship to God, to not be a stumbling block to anyone. There is also the reminder in this chapter to be in good order in the church, that we should go and this feeds on into the next half of this chapter when Paul begins to ask the Corinthians to pay attention to the way that they come into the Eucharist. And we haven't read it yet, but it talks about the fact that the rich were rushing in and they didn't have to come in from work and they could get there. They could get the best seats. They could be first in the snack luck queue. They were there ready to eat everything, all the best things on the table. They could get there first, whereas the poor people, men and women, were coming later because they were slaves and they had to finish their duties before they could come to church, before they could come to meet with other people, before they could come to the fellowship meal. So the big reminder for Paul that Paul goes on to is, and hey, this is another division that you're causing. You're causing a huge division between rich and poor and don't do it. 
He was so strong, chiding them, chiding the rich for excluding the poor. His words are even more passionate now here than they were between when he was talking about the male and female. All the way along, Paul is saying, love each other, love each other, love each other. Do not build hierarchies. Do not put divisions in. One of the things that's interesting about these verses on the Eucharist in the second half of chapter 11 is that actually, apart from the couple of verses last week in chapter 10, this is the only teaching that Paul gives on the Eucharist. And yet these are the words that every single week we say when we come to the table. And they are embedded into these two other passages which say, be careful. Be careful how you come to the Eucharist. Be careful how you come to this table together. Don't have divisions. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to come to the table without division, as the new partners in the redeemed community, quality of access. Paul gets really mad with the Corinthians for using the table as a place where people could pray favorites, rich feasting and the poor growing hungry. And so he calls attention and he tells them to prefer one another. When we come to the Lord's table, that should be where the church is at its best, a place where we all come after careful repentance, where we all come to eat equally, no pushing back women or making men prominent, no gen Jew and Gentile warring. This was a place where without exception, the heart of our distinctive faith is shown. Paul warns us and the Corinthians to not differentiate. Christ died for all. I loved Josie's presentation earlier. In order to be fruitful, a seed must die. Instead of pushing and self-promoting, it gives way to new life. And my hope for us as a community is that we will all mutually give way to one another as we engage in our own form of perichoresis, our own form of dancing love to make sure that each is preferred before ourselves. To invite all of us to die to self. In a few minutes, we're going to invite three people who've become dearly loved to us, a community, Tom and Anna and Michelle, to become members of our community. They're gonna make commitments. I will make a commitment. We'll all make commitments to each other. And we will all affirm that we are a community here based on our mutual belief as stated in the Apostles' Creed. We will talk about how we are part of one body united in Christ. And this week we will come to the table and the bread will be broken and a reminder that Christ's body is broken for you and for me. His blood is poured out for each of us, not one preferred group or another, but for all. Within the membership promises, we will also remember our three favorite incarnation words of worship, welcome and wonder. We're gonna acknowledge our children and remind ourselves that we have a mutual responsibility to shepherd them well, to not put divisions in between us and them either. As we read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you can't help but see how easy it is for groups to get lost in finding their way. For us all to begin to want to conform too much to the world and too little to Christ, to get caught up in preferences salutary to us at incarnation because we want to be faithful 
We want to receive a well done from Jesus, a celebration of our obedience. But it requires us all to listen well to one another, to be mutually respectful, to heed warning, to take advice. We're called to be members of a community because to be honest, I think we'd be terrible Christians if we were on our own. We'd so quickly get caught up into spirals of thinking and behaving. We need each other really, really badly. And so as we make statements of commitment, and those of you who are already members, I invite you to make your commitments again afresh today. We do so with as much humility as we can each rustle up, confident that it is in community and together that we will see God more clearly. And so I invite you to pray for Anna, for Michelle, for Tom. Pray for all those people in the little boxes to the left and right of you right now, asking for these words that we heard read from Jeremiah earlier to be true for all of us. Jeremiah writes that the Lord said, no longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. We all come as sinners asking God to forgive us and extend his mercy. What a relief, what a joy, what a delight that the Lord has made a covenant with us. What a grace that we can enjoy that truth together. We're going to enter into a moment of quiet in a, just a second. Can I invite you? in that quiet, to give thought, to ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind. If there are any ways in your behavior or in your outlook where you have created hierarchies or where that you have promoted division, ask the Holy Spirit to shine a light and then ask God to forgive you, to help you to move on in your delight and embrace of being part of a community of believers. Amen.